Jesus, thank you for your great love. Right now, God, we turn our hearts to you. We invite you, Holy Spirit, to come, shape, remake our hearts, our minds, and our lives. God, those areas in our lives that are inconsistent with your kingdom, we pray that they would go. In replacement of those things, God, we pray that you would create a passion for you and a passion for our neighbor. Love for you and love for others. We might be kingdom people, representing you, our king. And we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. I want to start with just this thought that from the very beginning of the Bible all the way through to the very end, there's this one, I mean, there's lots of common, consistent aims and ideas and concepts that get carried through. But one of them is this idea that God is actually building something. So in other words, Genesis 1 opens with, in the beginning, God created. God is building something. He's building something. Um, we know that that something at some point gets marred or vandalized, as some scholars have described, or broken. Uh, who is guilty of the vandalism? Um, that's, that's you and I, all of us. We all have the can of paint in our hands. We're all the ones that have been contributors to the brokenness in this world. And yet, in spite of the brokenness that you and I have contributed, God continues to move forward to create and build something of beauty. And what we begin to see is that that plan has never been thwarted. That plan has actually been doubled down on. That God is eager. God is consistently, God is continuing to build in spite of human efforts or satanic efforts to undermine or to destroy or ruin or vandalize God's good purposes in this creation. So with that being said, what I want to jump into now is the little writing that Peter has been putting forth for us. And we've been making our way through this great passage, this great letter, bit by bit, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We've been actually kind of moving our way slowly through it because it's really dense, it's really thick, and our time has been pretty much limited. So we're wanting to take the time to really focus upon what Peter has to say. With that being said, I want to begin this morning just by reading chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. You guys can remain seated if you want. I'm just going to go ahead and read it, so just pay attention as I read it, and then we'll begin to take a look at some really important elements with this theme of God building something in mind. First Peter chapter 2, verse 4 through 10 says this, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Verse 6, it says, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. The stum they stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. Verse 9, he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellences, excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You once were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, 
but now you have received mercy. And this is the word of the Lord. One of the things I think is really crucial as we look at this, there's really two things I want to look at. In fact, um, there's so much here. I'm, I'm going to basically delay what I'm going to be talking about, some part of this, until next week, and we'll spend more time focusing on this. And the two questions that I really want to ask are these. Number one, what is God building? If it's true that God is building something, again, Genesis 1 starts with that. The book of Revelation points to that. Um, what is it that God is actually building? I'll go through this very, very quickly because, like I said, the main bulk of this idea of what God is building, I want to preserve for next week. So I'll go through this real quick. Number one, verse five tells us God's building a spiritual house. Verse five also tells us that God is building a temple, what he describes as a holy priesthood. And then verse uh, six, he describes God actually laying in Zion a cornerstone. Um, again, next week we will spend really the entirety of our time looking at the subject matter of Zion. I've never taught on Zion before, just as a topic or as a theme. So, so fascinating. Part of me is just giddy with excitement to want to share this with you right now, but I'm not going to. But the fact of the matter is this idea of Zion. This is something that all human beings are deeply committed to trying to build, but instead of actually us building Zion, we as a humanity are actually building something vastly different, what the Bible just simply describes as Babylon. But God's committed to Zion. What is Zion? Like I said, we'll get into that more next week. But what I want to look at now is the second question is really, how is God building this? How is God building Zion. Again, what is Zion? We'll look at that next week. How is God building Zion or God building a brand new earth, new heavens, new creation? What does that look like? How is God doing that? What Peter tells us is it involves two major things. Number one, it, that it is that God is actually building with Jesus as the cornerstone. This is really important to understand. A cornerstone was the most important part of an ancient building. It's not a capstone but a cornerstone, something that everything else was built and laid upon. So the most important part of that building would have been this massive cornerstone, and then everything else would have been built out from it. This was the big idea. This is the image or the picture that Peter is drawing upon. But it's important to understand that Peter's not pulling this out of anywhere. He's not just kind of being creative or innovative. Peter's actually borrowing Old Testament imagery to basically build this thing out. One of the things I love about the Christian faith is that it's ancient. It's ancient. I think one of the dangers of modern Christianity is to sort of remove itself or to divorce itself or to untether itself from its historical roots. So we tend to think of ourselves as kind of a modern movement, you know, that began maybe like in the 70s or began in some season of a church historical calendar of more recent years, the past hundred years. But the church History is actually deeply ancient. It goes all the way back to 2,000 years ago in an upper room. And even before that, it goes back into this dovetailing into the very scriptures of God himself. This ancient, ancient story. Do you realize how beautiful this is? Because everything in our culture right now screams, make it modern, make it innovative, make it beautiful, make it new. The problem is with newness. is all things that are new at some point begin to rust and break down. So when it rusts, when it breaks down, then where do you go? That's the problem with many of us in our culture today. We're beginning to discover the signs of rust and brokenness or decay or dry rot. Now we're left with this question, now what? Now where do I go? But the historicity of the gospel is deeply anchored in this long historical storyline that Peter's actually saying, 
It's built upon Jesus, this cornerstone. Now, what we need to understand a little bit about Jesus is really crucial because Peter tells us three things about Jesus. Number one, according to verse four, he tells us that he was rejected by men. Number two, we're told again in verse four that he was chosen by God. God chose him. And then thirdly, we're told that he is precious, precious to God. Again, all in the verse four, and then that gets kind of uh, brought up again later in the passage. But listen to what he's trying to say for us, that this very cornerstone, the very heart of what God is building right now. So I want you to pause and just think about this. There's a lot of building project, not just going on in our county right now, in our city right now. A lot of houses going up, a lot of new buildings, a lot of new construction sites. But again, have you ever stopped to consider that God himself is actually building something? What is God building? Zion, like I said, we'll get to that next week. But the point is, are we part of that building process? Are we part of that program? Are we entering into it? Are we standing against it? Have we accepted it? Have we trusted what God is up to? Have we brought, bought into it and given ourselves entirely over to it? Or are we standing off at a distance saying, no, thank you. I'll create my own world or utopia or Zion myself. Which here's what Peter wants for us to understand that Jesus, this chief cornerstone, this chief element of this building project that God is up to in this world. Human beings, he says, have scrutinized him, analyzed him, and found him worthless and have rejected him. But he goes on to say, but God chose him. God sees the value of Jesus and says, this is the one. You might even want to put it this way, that God's building project is radically Jesus-centered. God's future is radically Jesus-centered. The hope that God has for humanity, that means for you and I, for your life, for my life, is radically Jesus-centered. So this is where, again, you can think about your life right now and ask, how Jesus-centered are you? Are your thoughts? Is your life? Because apparently to God, apparently to Peter, who's writing about the story of God, he's essentially reminding us that there is no true hope of longevity or sustainability or future that's apart from Jesus as the cornerstone, who was chosen by God, who's precious in God's sight, but it was ultimately rejected by human beings. That's what we see happen on the cross. Human beings reject Jesus. Those who bear Jesus' name, we see this even in the book of Acts and throughout the history of the church, and even in the history of the church today, I'm starting to read a book about the 21 Coptic Christians. If you remember back in, I think it was 2017, somewhere around there, they were marched out onto a beach, I believe it was in Libya, and they were beheaded for their faith. One of them, their dying words just before he was decapitated was a prayer to Jesus, rejected by men, accepted by God, but radically built upon the person of Jesus. He's going to go on to say, and I think it's, take a look at verses 6 through 8. He says, for it stands in Scripture. I think this is really crucial because what, what Peter, what I want you to see about what Peter is doing here is he's not, again, innovating this. He's not just whipping this stuff up out of thin air. He's not creating fables. He's not creating stories. He's actually saying, look, all about, all that I'm about to tell you is literally anchored in the very Scriptures himself. It comes from the storyline. It comes from the history. It comes from the narrative that God began. And here's what he's going to tell us. So he actually quotes 
three Old Testament passages. So, for example, take a look at verse 6. It says, For I'm laying in Zion a cornerstone, chosen, precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This is actually a direct quote from Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16. Skip on down to verse 7. He says, This is a stone that the builders have rejected. He has become the cornerstone. Again, this is actually taken directly out of Psalm uh, 118, verse 22. And then down at verse 8, he says, This stone of stumbling, it was a rock of offense. They stumbled because they disobey the word. That's a direct quote out of Psalm 8, verse 14. So what Peter wants to do is he wants to connect this ancient story of Israel, the people of Israel to the life that those that are faithful to Jesus were going on right now. And again, brothers and sisters, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have this deep, long, rich history that you are tethered to. Don't separate yourself from that. That tethering is not a means to bind you in a sense where you lose yourself. No, you actually find yourself in that story. Because our popular culture today says, untether yourself from any history from any family line, from any form of tradition, and just be you. How well is that going for our culture and our community? And again, which, which you will you live into? At some point, the amount of innovation that it takes to keep reinventing yourself gets exhausting. I believe it's one of the chief reasons why we have meaning machines like social media to keep feeding us new sources, new use that you can tap into, to endlessly scroll through, to try to discover a new you, a new self, a new meaning for purpose in life. But again, all I'm saying is that at some point that becomes endlessly painful and exhausting. And in its place, I believe what Peter's suggesting is an identity that we have that's deeply tethered to this historically rich storyline of God. That's freeing. And it's in that story we find ourselves. Now here's what he's going to go on to say, which leads me to the next thing and I'm done. So number one, we see how is God building this? Number one, with Jesus as the chief cornerstone. This building that God is establishing and creating in this world has Jesus as the very center of it all. Secondly, it's not the only thing that God has as a part of it. This is what's interesting about the text, is that God also invites human agents, human beings, people like you and I, to be part of this building project. Listen to what he goes on to say in verses uh, 9 through 10. He says, but you, listen carefully, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had received mercy, but now, once you have not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. What Peter's been talking to this community of people in the book of Peter is that these are a community of people that have been rejected by the community. Again, this has been a common theme we've been discussing uh, throughout this entire letter is that one of the reasons why Peter's writing to these people is because they're really trying hard to be faithful followers of Jesus in a hostile world to them. They have not re- received them. They've rejected them. And so what they're experiencing is this rejection from the culture. So did you notice the language that Peter uses is almost identical to describe the language that was used to describe Jesus? Rejected by men, accepted by God, and precious. So the second aspect of what God uses to build 
forth his kingdom, his Zion, involves you and I. Who are you and I? Rejected by men, accepted by God, and precious in the sight. I don't know how you think about yourself. I don't know how you think about where you even fit in society, in community, in church, in a small group, in a men's group, in a women's group, even here right now, maybe on a Sunday morning, either in this tent, outside of this tent, in the building, wherever it is, at home, where you even find yourself fitting in. I hope, I hope that the message of Peter resonates deeply and strongly with you. You are, for all intents and purposes, if you have devoted yourself to Jesus, you will be rejected by men. Yet somehow, that doesn't always sit well with us because we try so hard to not be rejected by men. We do everything we can so that we're not rejected by men. Now again, I'm not suggesting go be an idiot and be rude and be unkind to people and they're like, I'm rejected, see? No, you're rejected because you're not very kind. That's why you're rejected. Or sometimes we all know that Christians can be really weird. They post weird stuff on social media and repost weird stuff constantly on social media. You're like, they're really weird. I reject them. So they're being rejected, not because of their faithfulness to Jesus, but because they're just straight up weird and they keep posting weird memes. That's why they're rejected. But what I would suggest to you, that if you are a follower of Jesus, you will be rejected by men. It's part, part of the course. And without going too in-depth in terms of elaborating this, the best thing I think you and I can do is to just accept the fact that part of this world means that there will be a segment of society, it may be the majority of society, that will simply look at us as human beings and say, I don't like the way that you live your life. I don't, and again, I'm not just simply talking moral. I'm saying just even the ethics that we would say, love your neighbor, love your enemy. When the world is constantly saying, what tribe do you belong to? What group do you belong to? What political affiliation are you part of? Jesus? No, you have to be left or you have to be right. You have to be progressive. You have to be conservative. You have to choose. Jesus? I reject you. Okay. I mean, at some point, we have to look at the fact that's part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. But again, here's what... Peter wants us to see is that you are accepted and precious in the sight of God. God is actually using human beings to be a part of his building project. This is God's intention, by the way, from the very, very beginning. In fact, if you go back to the book of Genesis chapter 1, and you begin to read a little bit about what God had called Adam and Eve to do, their job was a monumental job that actually involved a lot of kids. A lot of children. It's one of the reasons why God says be fruitful, multiply, have lots of kids. Because your job of transforming this planet into habitable space that glorifies me, that blesses others, will involve an army of people serving, faithful, devoted to me. An army of people that are seeking out my wisdom and not the wisdom that comes innately to their own senses and their own desires. And their own sensibilities. But what Peter's suggesting to us is that God is at work in this world. And he wants to use each one of us. 
We looked at a couple weeks ago the idea of a stone. Again, you can look at this building real quick. So this building is one big, massive building. But if you look at it closely, it's one big, massive building made up of many, many stones. And this is the image that Peter wants for us to understand, is that the very work that God is creating is one big, gigantic community that he's building, but it's involved in, in involving lots of human beings like you and I to work together for that. I'm going to read a couple passages and I'll wrap this up. The way that the New Testament begins to expound this, Paul the Apostle and some of the other New Testament writers put it this way. So for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, it says this, you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst. A lot of times I think we read that from an individualistic perspective. Like you are God's temple. Like Eat good food and work out and go for hikes and take care of your body because you are the temple of God. But in reality, the you that Paul uses there is not you as a singular. It's you as y'all. Like you all are God's temple. He's writing to a community. Listen to how Ephesians chapter 2 verse 19 says this. You are no longer foreigners or strangers, but fellow citizens of God's people and also members of his household built upon the foundations of apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. Very similar language that Peter uses. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17. Again, we read verse 16. This is verse 17. He says, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. I don't know if you've ever really thought about yourself as being a part of a community. Again, everything in our culture tends to individualize everything. Not that that's bad. But if that's all we ever simply focus on, then we are oftentimes believing a shortened version, a shorthand version of this enormous story described as the gospel, the good news, that what God is up to in the cosmos is he's remaking all things so that it's no longer stained and tarnished and defiled by Babylon. God is birthing something brand new. And Jesus is the cornerstone of all of this. God has anchored all of this into Scripture. So the Scripture plays a very significant part of all of this. And again, I would even just add that in much of our culture today, there's a deep cynicism when it comes to Scripture. And for many, I think, within the culture today, especially here in California, I think there's a deep criticism of the Scripture, a deep tendency to question the, the Scripture. And so what ends up happening oftentimes is we believe the cynics. We trust the cynics and the critics rather than doubting our own doubts. I would suggest it'd be better for us to doubt our own doubts, to question our own questions, than to believe the cynics and to believe the critics. When the Scriptures form this framework you want to think of it maybe this way. It's the blueprint. Jesus is the cornerstone, and you and I are these building blocks that God is using to create something beautiful and brand new. I like to think of the idea of when we gather, something unique and special happens. We're all part of it. And I think when we come together and we don't acknowledge our part, it's very easy for us at some point over a prolonged period of time to begin to even question, do we even belong? Do I even have a place? Am I even important in this context or in this community? Do I even matter? Will I even be noticed if I don't show up next week or next few months? Will even anybody notice? 
And again, because our culture so individualistically perspe- uh, has a perspective of that, that, that tends to put a lot of pressure upon us to, to be noticed. But what if, what if the church were to function in a different way to recognize we're all one. We part, we're part of a community, a family together. We serve one another. We are eagerly looking for ways to plug in, to use the giftings that we have to serve one another. And as we begin to transition and pivot back into indoors and transition to back into some degree of normalcy, my encouragement to you, family, is to consider where you fit in. And one of the key ways for you to really quickly give yourself a litmus test and to ask yourself a question, how much does this apply to you? Is how, my question to you is, how often do you find yourself even asking the question, do I even fit in? Do I even want to go? Do I even want to be part of it? It's very likely that the reason why you're wrestling with those questions right now is because there has been a standoffishness. You've bought into maybe an idea or an ideology that tends to be different than the one that Peter's inviting us to consider and to consume, to think about. There's a scholar and theologian, a guy by the name of Walter Brueggemann. He says this, that Sabbath, the idea of coming together and pausing and reflecting upon God and worshiping God, he says this, that Sabbath is the refusal to let one's life be defined by production and consumption and endless pursuit of private well-being. I'll read that again because it's so good. That Sabbath is the refusal to let one's life be defined by production, consumption, and the endless pursuit of private well-being. Do you realize that is by definition our culture right now? You, as a human being, are defined by how much you consume, how much you produce, and how well you're able to self-individualize. Jesus invites us into an entirely different way of being human. That's radically contrasting to that. And as we come together, like we're doing right now, it's a way to break the shackles of that consumption, production, tyranny. And to say we belong to another master who loves us, who gave himself to us, who gave himself for us. And we've been brought into a new project, one that's not Babylonian, one that's not destructive, one that's not unsustainable long-term, one that is ultimately eternal. My invitation to you is to just simply ask yourself, how are you doing with that? How are we doing that with that collectively? And then to maybe consider where are ways that God may be inviting us to take a fresh look at not only Jesus, the one who had given himself for us, the very cornerstone upon which our lives ultimately are built. But ultimately as well, where do we fit in? How have we fit in? Have we isolated? Have we removed ourselves? Has obviously COVID has been a pretty strong agent to create a major distinction whereby we have been separated. But now I believe it's a time to come out of this. Guys, I want you right now to think about this. Take a deep breath. You're here. We're all here right now. It's 2021. It's not May of 2020. We're on the other end of that. God is doing something fresh, something new. My invitation for you is to be part of it. Ask God where he has you to be plugged in, to be part of what God's doing. Again, as we begin to pivot and make a transition back indoors, there's going to be a host of areas to get involved and serve on a Sunday morning gathering. 
to be a part of loving one another, to actively serving one another, especially moms and dads. We hear you. We recognize this journey over 2020 and the beginning of 2021 has been excruciatingly painful for you, especially having so many little ones and trying to figure out how to occupy their time. My hope is that as we begin to move into a new season, that God will begin to create something brand new, fresh and new and life-creating for you. But we need a family, a community to do that together corporately. So if you would like to tangibly be involved and be connected, again, as I mentioned earlier, just go to our website, sign up, be a volunteer. If you've never maybe volunteered before or if maybe you volunteered in the past before and it's like I've done that, I've been burned out by that, I don't want to do that again, maybe it's an opportunity to re-up that, to discover some new creative ways of using the gifts that God's given you. But my hope that as we begin to move into this, that we begin to see God doing something fresh. So in closing, I like to think of it this way, that scripture, which is the blueprint, plus Jesus, which is the cornerstone, and renewed human beings formulate the basis of this building project that God's up to. Are you on board? Our only other alternative is to look at the cornerstone and say, no, thank you. To reject that. This is exactly what Peter says, don't do. Because that very cornerstone, though may be convenient to reject and to omit or to flee from, apparently to Peter, as well as the entire storyline of the Bible, that very cornerstone will be the very one at some point, at the end of history, we will all have to ask ourselves, how did we make space for our lives around that cornerstone? Did we frame our lives according to his life? So I'm going to invite us all to stand. I'm going to pray. We will sing in closing. We will partake of communion. If you would like to partake this morning, go ahead and uh, receive from one of our ushers the little cup. And again, just in case you are new to this whole weird communion cup thing, There's a little wafer on top, so make sure that you see that and carefully identify that. So I'm going to pray. We'll sing a song. We'll partake of the communion together as an act of worship. Jesus, thank you for your great love. And we now, God, turn our hearts to you in repentance from sin, from our unwillingness to align our lives around you, Jesus, the chief cornerstone, and faith, whereby we say we we want to give ourselves over to you, to trust you. Because Jesus, you alone have the words of life. Where else can we go? What other alternative story can we give ourselves to? 